Hey, it's Angel, your friendly neighborhood doula. I am so excited to have you here on the Birth Cafe podcast. Here, we'll talk about all things birth, pregnancy, and postpartum. As a certified doula, lactation counselor, and perinatal educator, I hope to provide you evidence-based information on interesting topics while also having fun and open conversations about the perinatal period. This podcast is for birth professionals and parents alike, and I hope that you enjoy what you hear. So grab your favorite cup of tea or coffee, sit down, get comfy, and let's get started. Hello, everyone. It's Angel here again from the Birth Cafe podcast. I hope you guys are having an amazing day. Um, And I am so, so excited to have a very special guest. He's actually from my local area here in Cleveland, Ohio. He is a very popular and very well-respected OBGYN here in the Northeast Ohio community. And his name is Dr. Stetzer. Now, Dr. Stetzer here is really well known for pretty much one thing besides being an OBGYN, but he actually specializes in doing VBACs with a lot of the moms here in Cleveland, Ohio. So today we're going to talk about how to have a VBAC in a hospital setting. So I know there's some people out here who also do VBACs at birthing centers and home births and things like that. We're going to talk a little bit about home births, but we're mostly going to focus on how to have a VBAC in a hospital setting. And Dr. Stetzer is very near and dear to my heart because he actually helped me get my own VBAC with my fourth daughter. And he actually didn't even attend my birth. He just talked to the doctor, (laughs) Dr. Lappin. He's amazing. I love him as well. Um, But he actually helped me achieve my VBAC after two C-sections. And so Dr. Stetzer, I'm so excited to have you on this podcast. Why don't you introduce yourself Tell us a little bit about how you came into this work and anything else you want to add. Uh, Well, thank you for having me. Um, I practice maternal fetal medicine, so it's high-risk OB, and vaginal birth after cesarean isn't necessarily something that only maternal fetal medicine or high-risk OB people do, uh, as you know, from midwives as well as general OBGYNs. So it's an important topic, but isn't necessarily everything that I do. But uh, obviously, as you know, from my history, that it's important uh, that uh, it's something that's very important to what I do every day and something I really like to be involved with uh, for this topic. Awesome. Great. So how did you kind of get into doing VBACs? Like, I know well, I you're... Think that- yeah. When I was a when I was a medical student, when I was a third year medical student, uh, I had an opportunity of doing a rotation in a hospital where I was learning. I didn't even know I wanted to go into OBGYN, and there was a, a patient who had a previous cesarean section who really wanted to have a vaginal delivery, and I stayed in the hospital beyond my the normal time of the day. You know, I was supposed to be done at five o'clock, and I realized I was interested in OBGYN. And she delivered around 9.30 at night. So I stayed for four extra hours. And the husband didn't even want to be in the room because he was worried about he didn't like the blood and all of that. So I was like her labor coach. 
And to see this patient have a vaginal delivery, and we're talking 25 years ago, uh, when I stayed with her and just the excitement of not only doing the delivery and being involved with the delivery, but the fact that she was able to successfully have something that people thought she wasn't going to be able to do uh, was very exciting. And she named the baby after me. And uh, <laughs> never in the world no. would I expect them to name it after the medical student. And I think that's what kind of started it. But it's just in doing what I do every day and taking care of patients who were just so excited about this concept and not being able to find the right doctor to support what they wanted that uh, where it became more of a, a niche in OBGYN than I never necessarily expected to have. I mean, because I do everything obstetrics 24 hours a day uh, in managing high-risk pregnancies. And again, VBACs are not necessarily high risk, but there are many facilities that aren't capable of taking care of patients uh, for this, for whether it's legal reasons or whether it's comfort reasons. There's so many different reasons why organizations or hospital organizations and certain physicians don't manage VBACs, which we can talk about. But it was something that I had the opportunity to have the support at my hospital and uh, have just carried on through people whom I've taken care of that uh, has become more of what I do, even though, again, I, I do a lot of everything obstetric that you can imagine. Yeah, yeah. And it's so crazy because whenever in the birth community, and as you know, I'm a doula, um, but even as a mom who wanted to go for her first VBAC, one of the things that you know the community is always asking is who's going to support me in this VBAC? And without fail, <laughs> it's always your name. I, what you should see the Facebook post, it's absolutely insane. Just stutter, 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 stutter. And it you really kind of created almost a legend for yourself. And and you know, there aren't really a lot of other names that come in. Now, Dr. Lappin is starting to get more known. I think he might follow in your footsteps soon. <laughs> with, well, you, you know, understand that he did his training with us. So yes, he yes. was a fellow under me and we call each other our, a brother from another mother. So yes. we uh, we do practice very similarly. But yes. I think he has probably something that he just took out from working with me in his in from fellowship. But he's a very good doctor and I'm sure he would support this, which is great. I mean, you want this is not a competition. You want more physicians being able to offer this and offer this safely for their patients. And as long as the hospital organization supports the physician in these endeavors, then I'm glad that there's more people doing that. Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent. And we're going to kind of talk a lot more about like the hospital system and VBACs and kind of how all that comes to play. But before we get into that, I want to educate our audience a little bit about VBACs and the first question I want to talk about is who is an ideal candidate for a VBAC? And for anyone who's listening and they don't know what VBAC means, it, it's an acronym standing for vaginal birth after C-section. If you are planning on or you're hoping to uh, have a vaginal delivery after C-section, a lot of times they call it a TOLAC. You're, you're, you'll hear some providers call it TOLAC, which means a trial of labor after a C-section. Um, but we're really going to use the term VBAC, although that's so you can use whatever terms you want, but I normally just use VBAC. So what is the, um, like, who is an ideal candidate for VBAC? 
So when you look at someone who's had a cesarean section or more, the most important thing is looking at the reason for the first C-section. Why did this happen? Because when someone has a smaller pelvis or pushes for three hours or four hours to have a five or six pound baby, you have to think about something that might be a recurring problem, someone who may fail in the future. If someone just had a breech baby, never tried labor, um, the chances of success are going to be like any first-time mom. And the C-section rates have gone from 5% 100 years ago to 20 or 25% nationally. So you're looking at a lot of C-sections. And the C reason for cesarean section can vary greatly from a baby that's not tolerating labor, from a baby that's malpositioned in the pelvis, from someone who's bleeding or having some other medical complications. We have to remember the most common reason why we do cesarean sections is repeat surgery. And anytime you have repeat surgery, it creates risk to the mom, creates risk of blood loss and infection. It creates risk to future pregnancies where placentas can invade the scars that are now upon the uterus. So, so when I really counsel someone about a VBAC, the most important thing is why did they have that first C-section? If someone's ever had a vaginal delivery before, it lowers the risk of complications and significantly improves the likelihood of success no matter how many C-sections one has had. But if we're talking about someone who's had one cesarean section, then what I really want to do is to hear it from the patient, evaluate the operative report, and really break down why they ended up having a cesarean section because that really is going to provide the best evidence as to how they would do with a future pregnancy and delivery and how safe is it for them to try a, a vaginal birth after cesarean. So that is probably the most important piece of information uh, that I gather in evaluating someone as a good candidate or a bad candidate to undergo a trial of labor. Awesome. Awesome. And I would, I, I kind of wonder, even from your perspective as an OBGYN, um, what are some of the most common reasons we can go from your viewpoint, uh, like why you would do a C-section? Like what are some of those common reasons for C-sections and which C-sections would you say are the ones that we'd probably have to take a step back and say, maybe the VBAC's not best for you and which ones are just like, this probably would be a, a good option for you. All right, so, so that list can be vast, so I don't want to over-talk it, but I think some of the things that are really important would be uh, how big someone's babies are. So if someone is prone to make big babies, whether it's related to diabetes or just genetically, um, the bigger a baby might be, uh, the, the higher the chance of having a complication or a failure of labor. If someone has a known small pelvis or very inadequate pelvis for labor, that has to, that's going to be something that's going to reoccur. Uh, so you really have to look at, again, why they had that cesarean section. But um, if someone has had multiple cesarean sections, uh, there's very clear data and the American College of OBGYN supports if someone's had two C-sections or one cesarean section, that a vaginal delivery should be considered. In the setting of three cesarean sections, which I have done many times, there is much less data and many hospital systems have cracked down, including my own very recently. And so they do not wish to have people in that situation because there's not as clear evidence and the risk may be higher than we know. And we have to practice evidence-based medicine. So, so we try to have enough data before we declare something is safe. But again, anyone who's had a vaginal delivery previously, 
is an ideal candidate as long as they don't have a recurring problem. If the baby's heart rate went down or they started bleeding or the baby was malpositioned like breech, then these are patients that are really good candidates because these situations typically will not reoccur in a future pregnancy. If someone underwent uh, a forcep delivery and they failed and did a cesarean section, that is going to raise an eyebrow that that's something that maybe either the bell, the baby was too big to fit through the pelvis, the pelvis might have been too small, or maybe that the baby was malpositioned that can reoccur. And so I'm not saying that you definitely can't uh, VBAC, but there's a higher chance of failure. And when you look at all people who, all comers, about two-thirds of people will be successful after one cesarean section to have a vaginal birth. And so the odds are in your favor that you're successful. Now, remember, the odds of having a vaginal birth with a first-time mom is about 80%. Our cesarean, general cesarean section rate, 20 to 22%, is you know a good kind of rule of thumb. And again, there are many different reasons having to do with how long labor goes, infection in labor, um, babies not tolerating labor, inadequate pelvises, malposition of the baby. So there's so many different reasons why someone would have a C-section for their primary delivery that, again, you have to really break it down and determine whether they'd be a good candidate to try labor in the future. Awesome. I've seen you do some, and even with my own uh, clients that I've worked with, I've seen, and you've done it on me, some, you did a really good job at looking at those operative reports and deducing, like, what happened. And even if the C-section was necessary in the first place, I've, I've seen, <laughs> I've definitely seen you like, oh, yeah. Right, you have to, you have to question it. That's why I want the patient's view of what they experienced, as well right. as the operative report, to get the doctor's view of yeah. what, you know, what arose, what made them make that decision. Um, because you really want to do, the most important thing of what we do is to make sure things are safe for mom and baby. Right. And through all that, you're, you're trying to create that environment. And I think that that's one of the most important parts because, um, you know, it, there's risk involved and it's important to counsel about the risks. And I try to do that very neutrally about these are the risks of repeat surgery. This is the risk of having a VBAC because one has more risk for mom and one is more risk for baby and hospitals and everyone seems to be more concerned about the baby than mom. And I try to think equally that this is a mom issue as well, not just the baby. And I don't want mom to have more morbidity from undergoing a repeat cesarean section just because it's more convenient or, uh, you know, to, to kind of, you know, uh, what's the term, uh, you know, to that we will you know, mom can go through, will go through anything as long as the baby's okay. But I really think it's about the mom too and her views and feelings about what she's experiencing. And the reasons is one of the things I do ask is, you know, why do you want to do this? What is your driving force? And it may be because you want to have four or five more children and you're decreasing risk, or maybe because you just didn't like that experience and you felt like you weren't in control. Um, or maybe they just want to have that birthing experience. So, so I do ask that question because I think it's really important to know what the motivating factors are uh, and, and what drives them to, to want to experience them. Awesome. And so my next question that I have for you, and it kind of goes a little bit into the risk factor that you were just talking about. Um, someone actually asked this from my social media account, and they said, is uterine rupture the only risk for VBAC moms? 
So it's not the only risk, it's just the most serious risk. I mean, to have a uterine rupture, particularly if it didn't happen in a hospital and not identified quickly, can really affect oxygenation of the baby's brain that could lead to permanent injury or death. Uh, the bleeding that can occur uh, can be very, you know, uh, kind of large quantity. I mean, these things are very acute and very serious emergencies. And so it has to be identified very, very quickly. But uh, the, all the potential risks of, of vaginal delivery have to be incorporated into the risks of VBAC. All right, so, so it's not just about the uterine incision, the previous incision or incisions, but the risk of uh, changes in oxygenation of the placenta giving oxygen to the baby. It could be developing an infection inside the uterus called choriamnionitis that can lead to significant bleeding, lead to a generalized infection of mom, um, and lead to an infection of a wound should a cesarean section need to be performed. So, so choriamnionitis, prolonged labor, uh, fetal intolerance or changes in oxygen delivery from mom to baby, just like anyone having a vaginal delivery, all of those risks are incorporated with the further risk of, again, you got to look at why they had that C-section because that risk of uh, what's the, the pressure that's being placed on that previous scar. And then you also have to look at whether you're being induced or whether you're in spontaneous labor. These risks all do exist, but can be lower in the setting of spontaneous labor versus those that are induced or iatrogenically or doctor-created complications. Wow. I think it's so unique in your perspective that you love, you inform your patients both the risk of both options, both the C-section and the vaginal delivery. And that is very, I, I feel, even in, you know, the practice that I see as, and as a mother, that you only kind of get one side of those risks. So thank you for, you know, you know, informing your patients of all the benefits and the risk and the different alternatives that patients can go through um, so that they can make those informed decisions on whether or not they should move forward with a VBAC. So that's awesome. Well, thank you. I mean, I just think it's it's so important to have informed consent. When someone really wants to have a vaginal delivery, my job when I, when I meet with them is not to talk them into or out of something, but to make sure they truly understand both to the full extent so these discussions take a significant amount of time because I want them to truly be educated, particularly someone that's had two cesarean sections or in the past with three C-sections because the risks are real, the risks are serious, the risks are not common, but we, they have to truly understand the gravity of those situations because I always consider it sort of us against the world. It's, it's having the determination, the motivation to undergo this, knowing that labor hurts, um, and knowing that people have bias. I mean, there are nurses and residents and you know, our learners and, and other uh, physicians who are gonna, may suggest something because, but they don't know all the things that we've talked about and how prepared my patients are when they come to labor and delivery because they've, they've already been told all the risks and, and benefits of each different type and have made this decision on their own. And, and they have to be prepared. And as I always compare it to being in the ring as a boxer, you know you're going to get hit, but you have to have that determination that you're going to conquer it. And uh, that's one of the most important things of success in my patients is they're, they're really very motivated and internally determined, determined to, to succeed. And I think that that helps them to, to do well with labor and the delivery process. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. So my next question is, 
why are some hospitals and some providers not very supportive of VBAC? Now, you mentioned that your own hospital changed their policy, and I actually just learned this a couple days ago from um, somebody else who's in the healthcare field that they changed that policy recently. So can you tell me a little bit about why some of the hospitals and providers are either not supportive at, at all or do have these policies? Sure. Um, some community hospitals don't have 24 hours of anesthesia, 24 hours of pediatrics in their facility. VBAC is something that things, when they go wrong, if you're going to experience a uterine rupture, as rare as this occurs, and this may occur one in 200 times that, that someone is trying to labor, right? So it's a pretty rare phenomenon, but it's very serious. And if you don't have the appropriate teams in the hospital, uh, you have the, the pro, you know, these hospital systems have kept that in consideration that this may not be the best place for these patients to be to labor. So, so it's really about, you know, a uh, hospital risk that goes with this process and the, the acuity of how things can change and recognizing that and being able to react in an appropriate time, timely manner for the safety of mom and baby. So, so there's the hospital view of that and how many C-sections do we feel that's appropriate and what American College of OBGYN supports. And then there's the personal view of that where some physicians, uh, if you have a patient who has other complications, let's say they're, they're obese uh, and they've had repeat surgery, the ability to get to the baby quickly, to be able to get the baby out safely, takes more time and because of scar tissue and, and there's more risk with that. And they may not be comfortable with having to emergently deliver someone who might be uh, appreciably large and maybe a difficult entry into the abdomen to get the baby out in a rapid fashion. So part of it is just comfort level of certain physicians with, with their skills or uh, with with what they're comfortable managing, so so I don't blame someone for not just you know personally desiring not to manage VBACs. It's you know this is all I do is obstetrics. I'm not really a gynecologist. It's 24/7 of doing obstetrics, and I'm pretty comfortable with being able to do things quickly and rapidly if necessary, and I'm not afraid of these potential complications. So uh, I think in the our population needs support for for this for all the right reasons, to minimize risk of future pregnancy, and to allow people to feel like they're in control uh, of what's going on with their decision-making and how they decide to have a baby. And frankly, if I was having a baby, I'm a big wimp. I wouldn't want a major surgical procedure. So, you know, I, I try to put my own view, but again, everybody has their own biases and their own views, and it's their comfort level and hospital systems and all these different barriers that influence people's or hospital's decision to be able to offer this procedure. Okay, nice, very nice. Um, so what are your thoughts on a vaginal birth after two C-sections or even three? I know you, you mentioned that you've done VBAC after three C-sections. So what are your overall thoughts on moms if they're wanting to pursue that? So again, I think having a consultation is is very important with someone that would be supportive. Uh, hearing about the risks and how the risks change with multiple cesarean sections. So there's a big jump between having two C-sections and having three C-sections in regards to that uterine rupture risk. So I think it's very important to, uh, the most important part of it is, have you had a vaginal delivery before? 
because that overall lowers the risk. And then number two, those reasons for those C-sections. And you have to look at both of them individually and really determine if someone's a good candidate or not. Um, and that, that's a lot of investigating, a lot of discussion, and a lot of counseling to prepare that person. But the other, there's a lot of kind of other pitfalls like ultrasound. Our assessment of the size of a baby can be off by 25%. So that could be a pound difference. You think a baby's eight pounds and it only, when after delivery, it's seven pounds, right? And you kind of wonder, did that skew someone's view and how we counsel and, and how we approach labor? Oh, she's been six centimeters for three hours. Maybe we shouldn't be so patient and we're going to be more quick to do a cesarean section. So, so it's really your approach, not only to the counseling, but how I approach labor meaning I may be more patient with someone, or maybe clinically, I don't think that the baby's that big, and I think their pelvis is adequate, that I try to, you know, really give them, be very patient with their labor and allow their labor to progress as long as baby's doing well and as long as mom's doing well. I tell them this can be more of a marathon. This is not a sprint. So you can't expect to come in and in 12 hours pop out a baby. This may take 36 hours, and I'm very patient with my induction. I do things slowly to minimize risk. And you know, really make sure that they understand that this is going to be a process. And, you know, once you get them in labor, you know, it's just my management of labor is a little, is different than others in terms of my ability to assess a fetal heart rate tracing. And I may have a longer threshold to think that a baby is having a change in oxygen delivery. And, and it's all about all of the interpretation and how you manage someone's labor that sometimes makes a difference as well as in the second stage of labor, the ability to do to help someone who's pushed for three hours to do a safe vacuum or forcep delivery. We don't do these because we have nothing better to do. Having that in my tool belt is a very important part of being help someone who may be pushed for two hours with their first one and then they did the C-section and maybe they might be in that same situation, but I think their baby is low enough that I might be able to help them safely vaginally. So being able to offer those other aspects of, of an assisted delivery uh, does improve the success and decreases the risk of failing. Yeah, and I've, I've seen you do some forceps before and I was really impressed. <laughs> I have to say, I was really impressed. I'm like, wow, like that baby's head is like perfect. <laughs> it doesn't look like you snatched the baby's face or anything, no bruising. I was, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's really a very impressed. controlled process. Yes. It, it, this is not something that we ever take for granted. I mean, these instruments are solid metal and they don't squeeze the baby's head and the pushing effort of the mom is really important, but it is a, an incredible tool that I made sure I learned when I was in residency 25 years ago and use and I know it's made a difference in a lot of patients who in, in improving the success rate in a really safe manner. It sounds and seems really scary or old-fashioned or people have a lot of different preconceived ideas about forceps, um, but you have to understand it's not only about how long I've been doing this because 25 years ago I was doing it for three years and I was still doing them. So it's, it's comfort with it, it's, it's being in control, it's making sure that a patient is counseled about how we use them and not to seem scared. Um, and knowing that if it's not working, that I take them off and do do a C-section. So it's not put my foot on the bed and go for broke and pull that baby out. It's a very careful and cautious thing. And I train a lot of residents and fellows over all this time how to use this very special tool that 
is probably one of my most favorite things because of the ability to help someone that many obstetricians don't have in their tool belt. If a vacuum, which is designed to pop off and it pops off a couple times, you don't have another option and you have to do a C-section. So I prefer the forceps to vacuum, but I'm fully comfortable using both methods. Um, and I, I can't tell you how many times it's made a difference. And I'm so grateful for that training and that skill. Yeah, yeah. And the client that I was a doula for that he attended the birth for and he did the forceps, she was very satisfied with her birth. Actually, she just sent me a picture uh, a couple of days ago because it was her son's first birthday. So <laughs> um, she was very, very happy and satisfied with her birth. Um, so that's great. Um, okay, so next question is, what do you think needs to change to make VBACs more accepted in the medical community? Um, you know, I really just think it's about education of patients on about VBAC, them being aware of their, that they have options and that knowing that you're going to hospital systems that support that because of, again, you've got to have a hospital that has the pediatrics and has anesthesia. You know, I don't work in a vacuum as much as I do deliver all my own patients. Uh, I work in a team and the anesthesia the peds, the nurses, all the team that, that works around me is incredibly important in what I do. And I, there's no way I can do that without all of the support that I have. And so having a hospital system that supports uh, and understands all the counseling and how we, we do consent forms so that we know that patients have, have proper informed consent and have been offered everything in terms of all of the options um, it's just, you know, supporting the OBs that that want to be able to offer this service. I mean, again, I recognize that some obstetricians just aren't comfortable with that, and I respect that. So it's just utilizing those physicians that, that are comfortable with hospital systems that are supportive and educating our, you know, whether it's the midwives and doulas and, and patients alike so that we all work together to uh, get the patients to be able to have this opportunity um, if they choose this uh, form of delivery. Awesome. And for anyone who's listening as well, I did another podcast with Emily from Serving Tomorrow, and we talked about a lot of the research that is out there on VBACs. And I'll link the uh, podcast uh, to that, to the podcast I did with Emily. I'll link that in the show notes so that you guys can look at the research because we did talk a lot about like ACOG and um, some of their uh, recommendations with VBACs and inductions and what they require for the hospital. So if you guys are interested in that, I will link that in the show notes. Okay, so where, where would you say that healthcare professionals, if they wanted to learn more about VBACs, what are some of their recommendations? Where can they go to learn more? Um, well, there are a number of conferences that address this topic uh, that can be online or in person, but there are many conferences that uh, address uh, labor and delivery complications, and uh, there are many of these conferences that are directed towards midwives, uh, as well as residents and, and physicians that are looking for continuing medical education. So these are just ongoing, nonstop. You'll see them at least once every three months. You'll see conferences that might address 
this issue as part of the continuum of all obstetric topic topics. Uh, it's certainly, you know, it's always a hot topic, uh, and the pendulum swings in different directions or depending upon, you know, uh, data that comes out. But there's very clear data about the safety, uh, particularly after one cesarean section. But again, it's really trying to make sure that a patient is a good candidate because if a patient really pushes for four hours and can't deliver a, f a five pound baby you've got to really look at that and a patient or a family needs to really assess whether they think that this is the right thing for them to be doing so it, it, to me it's really identifying the right patient and then being in control of their labor to not just oh i gotta go play golf now i'm gonna go do your c-section because i want you to be done right you have to be very patient uh you know so it's a whole mindset it's a preparing the patient for being confident and and knowing that they're going to conquer something. It's the doctors and and I can only control that for myself. And then having the support staff around you that that supports what you want to do. So to me, it's all it's about communicating and educating the providers as well as the patients. I mean, patients should seek con a, a, a consult at least to be informed. All right, that we've reviewed everything and maybe you're not a good candidate. And I'm not afraid to tell someone they're not a good candidate. They may or may not listen to me. And yes, I'm taking care of someone that maybe was not a good candidate that really tried. I even currently have a patient who had did that three times and couldn't, you know, push for three or four hours and get a five pound baby through her pelvis. But there was something about that, that she felt uh, sh this is what she wanted, even though she wanted to su succeed, she's glad she gave it a try. Right. So it's just different goals that people have. And I do respect that, even though I want it to be safe. Um, and so you've got to kind of think about that. Uh, but, you know, those those things are very important. It's really about the education of the community um, about all of the options and just have sitting down and having that conversation so that at least they feel that they truly know that they're good or not a good, not an ideal candidate. Right. Awesome. So now the next question I have for you is, uh, it's a little bit more personal, still in the realm of, you know, healthcare and, and OBs and all that stuff. But I am curious because you're such a unique healthcare provider. Um, I have seen you come into the room and you have that staff, the staff that you're talking about. You have a great nurse team. Um, I've seen you take control of a room and be like, look, I don't want anybody else in this room. This is, this is what I want. Like leave her alone. <laughs> Baby's heart rate looks great. Awesome. Let's leave her alone. And so, and you also attend a lot of your patients' births, which is very, very unique in our healthcare system because a lot of, you know, OBs, uh, do and midwives do on call schedules. So, how did you become to be such a unique healthcare uh, provider that you know is able to attend his his own patients' births and um, to have such a great team around him? I mean, first and foremost, it starts with my family. My wife is very supportive of what I do, uh, and I couldn't do anything that I do without her. You know, with our own children, and and I, you know, love being home, being with my family. But I've also been very dedicated to these patients, particularly that need this. You know, the the skills of every OB is going to be different from person to person and place to place. So, you know, it's it's really about my the, my style of managing labor and being patient and knowing that the patient is fully educated. So I know I have a little different style, but. You know, it's really about, you know, having the a very supportive wife and family that allows me the opportunity to be able to do this when I need to go in because, 
the other people that are there, yes, they're good obstetricians, um, but they just do things in a different style and they may have a lower threshold for doing cesarean section. And so there's so many things that go into the success of this that, you know, it's just hard for me to, you know, I, and the midwives that I work with, there are some, uh, some of our nurses are actually their midwife students or, or, or our midwives. And so utilizing the right nurse that has that positive attitude, that's going to be really supportive of our patients. You know, it, it's a, a definite team effort. There's no doubt about it. And I couldn't do what I do without all of that support stuff, and, including my, my family. I mean, that's really all I can say. I just, I do the best I can. I'm not perfect. I mean, I can't be at every delivery. And sometimes someone comes in and delivers in triage and I don't have a helicopter to get there in three minutes. So, you know, I do the best that I can, but, but I'm certainly not perfect, but it's just been a drive for me to to make sure that I'm available because I don't want someone to get a different opinion from someone they've never met. And there's part of it, the success is that connection that I have with the patient and their confidence in me and my confidence in them uh, and how we work together throughout the prenatal care to prepare for that event. Uh, it's us against the world. You know, I keep saying that, but, you know, I sometimes feel that way. And again, the obstetricians I work with around me are, are excellent obstetricians. They just, it's a different philosophy. It's just a different approach to what we do. And I just say it's different. It's not better. It's not worse. It's just different. Different. Yeah. And I can agree to that. I'm actually uh, going to be interviewing another OB tomorrow. I don't know if you know who Dr. Stu Fishbein is, but uh, he also has a very unique way of delivering. And we're going to talk about breech babies tomorrow, but um, it's great. It's awesome to, you know, find these, you know, find providers that are willing to support moms. And, you know, at least like you said, like you let your provider, your, you let your patients try and that's awesome. So, um, okay. My very next question is actually, we're going to kind of deviate from VBACs a little bit and kind of talk more about like doulas and home births. Um, and that's going to be my last few questions. But uh, somebody had asked, how do you think doulas can best support a mom in a VBAC if they don't have such a willing provider? I think doulas just need to do, they're an advocate for the patient. They're a support person for the patient and the family. And doulas play that role. I don't even know if it's about VBAC per se. Uh, it could be about anyone labor. It's about the pain management. It's about focus. It's about, you know, just being part of the team that supports uh, patients in this endeavor because patients often feel alone or me and my husband or, you know, whatever their situation is. So a doula is just another positive attitude and a, pa a positive approach to supporting their delivery. So, so as much as I certainly don't want to take away from the VBAC experience, but to me, a doula can be, you know, someone who's just there to, to change the lighting or the music or, you know, supporting, rubbing someone's back, or it's just part of the rock of the support that helps the patient and the family experience their birth. I mean, a birth is such a, an amazing experience and such a something you remember forever. And to me, the doula is just a part of the positive attitude and atmosphere that you want a delivery to be. So, so it's not so much about VBAC because a doula can be helpful no matter what kind of delivery you're having. Um, and I just think that that's where the, that true support that, um, that helps a family have the delivery that they want to have. 
So in VBAC, I mean, sure, it gets the us against the world concept, but at the same time, it's just another support person, another positive attitude to, to help the experience be as positive as it can be and as enjoyable as can be, for lack of a better term. Yeah, absolutely. And we as doulas, we, we love, you know, working with the hospital team and um, we're all a team. Um, it And we're all an important aspect in get, helping that mom get to where she needs to, you know, go with her birth or, you know, helping her navigate her different choices. So that's awesome. And to piggyback off of that, someone else had asked, is there anything that doctors wish that doulas knew? about birth in general, or just like working with parents, anything that doctors wish that doulas knew? I think um, the most important thing that, that, that doulas can, you know, they, as much as they can be supportive, they need to be careful that, that they do work in collaboration with the nurses who maybe they don't know well, uh, and just with the team in general. And they need to know when they're there, they're there and what that role is in terms of being supportive. So you don't want to have an antagonistic environment and and doulas as much. I completely support um, their involvement. I personally really like having a doula there to support the patient. I just don't like if they're not as involved as maybe they should be. They're off in the distance in the corner or something, reading a book or, or you know, not really getting a chance to participate like you would want them to be. So I think it's just important to know that when you're there, you're valued. Um, but I really want you to be part of the team and making sure that the nurses' involvement, the physicians, the residents, all the different teams that are within the hospital by themselves, you're the in-between. You're sort of a medical professional and you're a patient advocate. You're right in between the two and it's really good to making sure that you're bridging that gap and enhancing the uh, relationship between nurses, physicians, family, and the patient herself. And, and so knowing that importance of being that bridge is really what I want a doula to know um, because, I, you know, if a doula is sort of arguing with people or creates an antagonistic environment with nurses, it kind of makes it more uncomfortable than it might already be. And so I just think making sure that we're all on the same page, working together to, to be as supportive as you want, because sometimes you're sort of arguing on behalf of the patient. Um, and you're really taking that side and maybe it could be something a little bit that the nurse may not be comfortable with. And then, you know, then there's this discussion about, well, how do we support this patient without their knowing that there is a conflict, right? And so I just think it's important to to understand the the balance of being between the medic the true medical sense and the true family support sense and how the doula really brings it all together, in my opinion, um, and to enhance that. Uh, working relationship between all of us. I think that is, you know, what when we're talking about doulas, that's kind of uh, a skill set of doulas is being able to uh, have that balance of good communication and uh, de-escalation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's yes. maybe they might be taking pictures. Maybe they're changing the music. Maybe yeah. they're you know, massaging the feet of the patient. I mean, yes. there's so many different things that you do that are relaxation directed and and keeping that mom focused and being able to have enough power to push after pushing for a long time. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, the that's really what I think doulas are, are wonderful for. Yeah. When I was in training, 
there was a hospital that didn't even have epidurals. And it was like the epidural was the doula, call a doula that's gonna sit with this patient and support them through this because they're really uncomfortable, they're out of control, and we can't offer them an epidural. And I, I, this may be dating myself because I'm older, but uh, <laughs> I remember being in this inner city hospital in Detroit, Michigan, where there there weren't, we didn't get, have an opportunity to get epidurals for everybody. And it was, the doula would come in and calm the patient. And it was like, this is when I first really learned, oh, a doula is a, a replacement for an epidural. But no, that's not really the case. But uh, but it was where I really learned that a doula can help someone be calm for patients who would really need that support because they didn't, you know, we were just giving pain medicine through an IV and it wasn't wasn't relaxing them enough. And, uh, you know, it was a really, they're screaming. You can hear them three floors up. And yeah. so the doula comes in and like, okay, we can be in control and all work together. Yes. So, yes. so I learned very young in my career about what doulas can offer. Awesome. That's awesome. I love that story. <laughs> so, okay. My very last question is about home births. Um, I actually, I, I'm kind of curious because I actually don't know what your opinion on home births are, but someone did want to have this question asked to you. Um, so how can home birth midwives and doctors work together so that your patients, clients have the best outcome and experience during prenatal care, labor and birth, transports and postpartum? So I really think the issue of home birth uh, is an important one because it's become a lot more popular um, with COVID or for other personal reasons. Um, and I personally don't have a problem with a home birth in most situations because most pregnant, most deliveries are going to be healthy and safe. There's the hospital side of me that, that must asterisk this and make sure that people understand. It's like I always use the analogy: if you were a, uh, if you were in a circus and you were a, a trapeze artist, um, that it's it's and if you were practicing every day, your your work and you're very skilled at what you do, and you decide to practice without a net below you, it's that one slip or that one complication that can lead to very serious problems. How far away from a hospital are you? How good is your EMS to get to your house and take you there? How good is the midwife to recognize a complication that you need to identify in enough time to make sure that the patient is safe? You know, how much bleeding? How's the baby's heart rate? How is the labor progressing? Is the baby head down or breech? Are there twins? Is it a VBAC, right? So you have to really, I, I think we all trust the midwife to be that medical professional to recognize whether things are going safely or anticipating that something might be a complication. So, so as much as I personally support the safe delivery and having the delivery the way mom wants and the control that she's going to have by doing a delivery at home, there's the hospital side of me that just wants it to be safe. The first and foremost rule of anything that I do for any patient of mine is the safety of mom and baby comes first. So I just need to make sure people really understand that balance. It sounds like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but I really want that to be safe. So the most important thing is for you having that one, you know, medical professional, whomever it is, to recognize that something is changing, to recognize that something could potentially become dangerous, 
and when to refer the patient to go to the hospital, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, the VBAC and the twins and the, you know, these have more risk. Uh, the risk of bleeding and getting them at the hospital fast enough to, to address their bleeding. Uh, a baby that's heart rate is staying down and not coming back up and you can't augment that delivery process. That can be incredibly dangerous. I mean, five minutes without oxygen is what it takes to go from a normally oxygenated brain of a fetus to a very permanently, you know, hypoxic or asphyxiated neonate. And, and so that is a, you know, these complications don't necessarily happen all the time. Most of these are going to be safe and are going to go smoothly. So I'm not trying to scare people. I just need people to really understand the risks uh, of practicing without the net under you. And then if they choose to do that, that their medical professional is going to be with them, really has the ability to evaluate and know when something changes and get that patient to the hospital under some other medical care if one of those complications arise. It's anticipating. The main thing of obstetrics is anticipating a problem. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes things happen quickly and decisions have to be made quickly. And you're relying on the person there to be able to make that decision. So the person who wants a home birth, it's partly knowing, having a plan. Mm -hmm. of where's the hospital? Who's the doctor that's going to know about what's going on? And then partly choosing your midwife and choosing your medical professional who's going to make sure that everything that you're experiencing uh, is safe and knowing that they're going to recognize the problem and get help and not take it upon themselves to try to fix it at home uh, if it creates potential danger that could be life-threatening life to mom, baby, or both. So, so I just think that people have to really investigate if they want to have that done safely, and most deliveries are going to be safe and be fine. Mm -hmm. We're talking about rare complications, you know, these mm -hmm. things that can happen that uh, obstetricians must recognize and deal with and deal with quickly. Right. Um, and, and it's just really about that. That's That, to me, is the most important part of this whole process. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And yeah, again, thank you for, you know, letting us know, like, all those risks and um, informing your patients of, you know, all the benefits and the risk of, you know, the different choices that they make. And that's absolutely wonderful. And so with the home birth, I know a lot of, like, home birth midwives are, like, there's a lot of certified nurse midwives actually leaving the hospitals and actually going and doing their own private practice. Do you foresee in the future, at least in our community uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, do you see in the future any bridging of the home birth community and, you know, the current community that we have, um, either with home births or even birth centers in the future? Yeah, I think my view about that is exactly what you just said. I think a birthing center is sort of your middle ground. Uh, between a hospital environment and the home environment. I mean, I try to make, as you know, my deliveries in the hospital as homey, if that's the right word, try to make <laughs> yeah. it be like home, you know, because yeah. I don't want them to feel like they're not gaining, that they're losing control just by being in the hospital. But uh, I definitely think there needs to be some bridging of the gap, you know, physicians being available, potentially going to homes and participating. I'm not, I'm not against this concept. It's doctors necessarily are not doing that regularly now, unless you're in very rural areas, just because 
you're under an umbrella of, of, of safety of what we have in the hospital. And, and from our medical legal part of what we do, I can't just go to someone's house and assist in that delivery as much as I make myself available on the phone to communicate and recognize or help recognize a problem as my patients know I'm available to them. You, I can't necessarily go there. So there needs to be some changes in the system mm -hmm. that might allow physicians to be more involved in those kinds of things. So so that's a whole new thing. <laughs> I don't know where that is or yeah. if places do that. But, but a birthing center that's run mostly by midwives that have a physician backup, you know, I think these are great things. And the midwives I've worked with, we've joked around for years about having a birthing center where I was you know, working with midwives in these, in those kinds of centers. So I just think there needs to be, that gap needs to be bridged on, on all of those levels yes. because home birth doesn't sound like it's going anywhere. Um, I want deliveries to be safe. You know, if I had to make myself available, depending upon how far I were traveling and how much, you know, it, it's just another element to obstetrics. I feel like we're going back in time to 1900. When, <laughs> You know, people only delivered at home. I mean, this mm -hmm. is the way it used to be. Mm -hmm. um, so it's partly educating the patients about this option. It's partly about recognizing that someone can have a birth in a hospital and not lose control of what they want the delivery process to be. So I think it's a give and take on both sides. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I hope, I, you know, I hope one day that, like, again, one of these days we'll get a, a birth center in Ohio. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know when. I don't know the legalities of it or anything like that. And hopefully that communication, you know, that bridge, you know, will, and I actually, I really do foresee it, especially with some of the nurse midwives kind of taking, taking their stance on, on these issues. But yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, yeah. Well, that's all the questions I have for you. Is there anything else that you wanted to add or share? Well, I mean, uh, you know, we're moving into a brand new hospital in two weeks. We yes. have a couple low intervention rooms that do have a bathtub, have wow. and all of our rooms have special lighting and and they're they have windows and so there's a lot of changes that are going to our own hospital with a brand new uh, birthing center birthing rooms um, and so I'm really looking forward to having a different environment for my deliveries and the low intervention deliveries. We have two very specific low intervention rooms, and I think that that's going to really help at least people to be aware that we have that where there these are low risk patients that are in spontaneous labor and you know just trying to make sure that it's safe who want and choose to have a delivery in the hospital setting that yeah. uh, this is you know so and many hospitals are creating these so it's not just about my hospital but um, I just want people to make sure that they know that their delivery is what they want it to be and they voice those views and that it's safe for them and their baby. Really, that's I couldn't ask for more than that, no matter how they deliver, where they deliver, or what kind of delivery they wish to have. Yeah. But to have their voice is important and their doctor just needs to listen to those <laughs> points yeah. so that they can make the delivery as much to that, uh, to what they want it to be as, as a family would want. So. You know, I think that's the important thing and finding a doctor that that listens to you and hears what you really want and what you want it to be. Um, this is a life changing event. Having a baby is something that you never forget. Mm -hmm. And so I like to try to make it as special as the moment is. Yeah. Awesome. So virtual high five for being, you know, the awesome doctor that you are. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And yes. uh, it was very fun talking to you today. Yeah. And. 
for everyone again if you're listening um i'm gonna put everything that we talked about and some extra VBAC resources in the show notes so that you guys can you know find the research and find any support for uh having a VBAC if that's what you desire um if you're in the local cleveland area and you have any questions about like the local area and you know achieving a uh VBAC here or any other kind of delivery feel free to reach out to me and i can point you in the right direction um but other than that dr setzer i thank you for being on my podcast and you know sharing your insight and your wisdom with me it's been my pleasure thank you very much all right i hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as i enjoyed making it our journey doesn't need to end here don't forget to hit that bell button to get alerts on any new episodes and if you like what you hear give the podcast a five-star review The best time to start preparing for a better birth is during pregnancy. I've curated a checklist to help you prepare for this fear-free, in-control, informed delivery you're looking for. We've included things like when to start planning for your baby shower, when to start buying baby items, and I've even divided everything by trimester. You can get the checklist in the show notes. You can also take my quiz on how to avoid a C-section and get tips on how you can avoid getting an unnecessary C-section. Just head to my website and click the banner.